0: I want to uh, remind you that this is Moral Day weekend. And um, we do want to take a chance to pause and reflect and remember, so check out the screens as we do that. Do you ever stop to wonder where we would be today if um, the tens and thousands of uh, men and women, heroes, uh, had not paid the ultimate sacrifice? uh, Would we even be meeting today? And uh, are we not blessed to live in a country where freedom has been valued? And yet, uh, how tragic when wicked people abuse those freedoms, as we have certainly seen again this week in Texas. The uh, powers of darkness are on the march, are they not? um, The Apostle Paul said, uh, the perilous times are coming. And when you look at the news, you wonder if uh, they have not arrived. But um, sad days. And yet, uh, like the preacher of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, Koheleth, once wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. Three thousand years ago, over three thousand years ago, in ancient Israel, there was a period of time of, uh, of incredible darkness, um, deep, deep wickedness that was um, enveloping God's chosen people. In fact, the whole book in the Old Testament is devoted to that time. It's called the Book of Judges, the period of the Judges. It was not a good time in Israel's history. Uh, Those people had uh, everything going for them. A God had redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, brought them into a promised land, and yet it it seems like he became irrelevant to them. They turned their back on him. They worshipped other gods. and, And God is a holy God, and he's a just God. He had warned them, Deuteronomy 28, If you uh, keep my commandments all these blessings will come but if you don't keep my commandments all these cursings are going to come upon you and for several hundred uh, years that book of Judges uh, shows the judgment of God as the people turn their back from him and so God would bring uh, a neighboring country in and oppress them and and put them into uh, slavery or subjection and after a while they had enough they'd cry out to God for deliverance and God would hear their cry and he would bring up, raise up uh, judges and men and women who, who stood uh, for God, at least for a time, and the people's heart would be turned back and there would be a relative peace, and then the whole thing started over again. They would forget God, and, and this whole cycle began again. In fact, there's a, a passage in the book of Judges that just nicely summarizes this whole thing. Just turn to the book of Judges. It's the seventh book in the Old Testament. You got the Pentateuch: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then that book of Joshua. But then Judges. So Judges chapter two, verse eleven, is a great summary of this Old Testament book. Judges chapter two, verse eleven. Now I'll read here from the New American Standard Version. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the, the false gods, the Canaanite deities. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed themselves down to them, and thus they provoked the Lord to anger. And so they forsook the Lord. They served the Baal and the Astral. Verse 14 says the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. And wherever they went the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. Well verse 16 says then the Lord (coughs) raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plunder them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges. They played the the harlot after other gods. They bowed themselves down to them. They turned aside quickly from the way um, in which their fathers had walked and obeyed the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. And so when the Lord, verse 18, raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following after gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. (laughs) But that that is a summary of these several, a couple hundred years of the time of the judges. It was this cycle Uh, The people would sin, they would follow after other gods, and so God would put them into servitude. Some nation would come and subject them to oppression, and after a while they would cry out to God, supplication, and God would hear them, raise up a judge and deliver them. There might be a relative period of peace, and then the judge died, and the people went right back and forgot it all over again, even though God had brought their salvation. This cycle of sin and then servitude and supplication and salvation and then sin all over again, I think it's something like seven times in this uh, period of the Judges, this cycle continued. In fact, if you go to the very last verse in the book of Judges, maybe that's even a, a a more simple summary of it all. In the very last verse, chapter 21, verse 25, we read this. <clears throat> in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Whether they had forgotten what God had said, what was right in his eyes or just ignored what was right in God's eyes, they turned their back on God, they spurned God and they did what was right in their own eyes. And it, it, interesting that it says they did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, they didn't do what was evil in their own eyes, they did what was right in their own eyes. It shows how far they had moved away from God and understanding what really was right. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now one of those people who did what was right in his own eyes was a man by the name of Elimelech. And if you turn the page over to the little book of Ruth, one page over, we find out about Elimelech. Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Let's look at this little book. It begins with these words, it came about in the days when the judges governed, that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. (coughs) And verse 2 says his name was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. And now they entered the land of Moab and they stayed there. They remained there. Let me introduce you to This family of four. Elimelech his name means my God is king that's a great start my God is king and his wife's name Naomi means uh, pleasantness or delightful. What a lovely couple they must have made and they had two sons. Now this is where it gets a little dicey but the Malan uh, one son his name means weak or weakly and, and puny. And, and then Killian, his name meant, um, as best as people can understand that word, it means probably failing or pining, pining away. Um, good chance that maybe when these boys were born, they were born weak or sickly or, I, I don't know why you'd name your kids that, but they did <laughs> because that's, that's what they must have been so you have this family of Elimelech, my goddess king, Naomi, pleasant and delightful, and, and then these two challenging maybe children, Malan and Kilian. And it says there that they are Ephrathites. I'm again, not sure what that means. It's put here kind of as, a, as maybe a, 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 um, to um, emphasize that this may have been a prominent family. The Ephrathites were probably the original Settlers in the, that area, Bethlehem, which means, by the way, house of bread. And so these, this family, they find their roots back to the originals. They were probably people of means. They were Ephrathites of Bethlehem. Uh, maybe people of prominence. But the text tells us that there was a famine going on in the land. And so Elimelech did what was right in his own eyes caught up in the culture of the day. There was no king in Israel, so everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And to Elimelech, well, I'm not going to leave my family here to starve. And about 50, 60 miles over east, on the other side of the Jordan, um, there's the land of Moab. And they seem to be doing fine. And so he did what was right in his own eyes, and he loaded up his family and uh, put some few supplies in the camper, and it says they went there to Um, to stay, to sojourn in the land. It's a word that means a temporary stay. You know, pack up the camper, we'll go over to Moab for a little bit, and and when things get better in Bethlehem area, we'll come home. Just for a little while, just for a little while. But if you look again at verse 2, it says, They entered the land of Moab, and they remained there a different word that has the idea that they settled down there they they stayed there they they took their temporary stay idea and they made it into a permanent stay and it was a very tragic decision that they made now l- let me give you some background why it was a tragic decision again Elimelech was doing what was right in his own eyes made perfectly good sense I got to take care of my family but it was tragic because it was a violation of God's law. Um, God had promised, and I'll do this quickly, but back in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abram from the land of Ur of the Chaldees and said, Go to the land I'm going to show you, I'm going to give you. And God says, I'm going to bless you there. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to bless you in that land. Um, the, the, the progeny of Abraham, the people of Israel, and the land were, were tied together. Um, centuries later, as the children of Israel were redeemed out of the house of slavery in, in Egypt, God brought them to the land, the land that was flowing with milk and honey. It was the land that he was giving them, a land of blessing. Now, let's go back real quickly to Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11 and get uh, a little context here. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 8. Deuteronomy 11, verse 8 says, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today so that you may be strong and you can uh, possess the land into which you are about to cross to possess it so that you may prolong your days on the land which the Lord swore to his fathers to give to them and to their descendants it's a land flowing with milk and honey verse 10 for the land into which you are now entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came where you used to sow your seed and water it and, uh, with your foot like a vegetable garden verse 11 says but the land into which you are about to cross to possess it's a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven. It's a land, verse 12, for which the Lord your God cares. For the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. Verse 13, it shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I'm commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. He'll give you the rain for your land in its season, and the early and late rain, that you may gather in your grain your new wine and your oil. He will give you grass in your fields for your cattle. You shall eat and be satisfied. But beware that your hearts are not deceived, that you do not turn away, and you serve other gods and worship them, or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. He will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain on the ground and it will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the, from the good land which the Lord is giving you. God said, I'm going to give you a land. It's a land I care for. It's my promised land, and you're my promised people, and together, you on that land, if you follow me, great things are going to happen. I'm going to bless you in the land but if you sin, I'll remove you from the land. Here's Elimelech doing what is right in his own eyes. God is not removing him from the land, which, by the way, was having a famine because everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. They were following after other gods, just like God had said in the book of the law. God is not removing Elimelech and his family from the land of blessing. Elimelech is removing himself. Why? Why? Seemed the right thing to do. And going to Moab, are you kidding me? A little background to the land of Moab. We won't take the time to turn there, but Genesis 19 tells this sordid story of of Lot and his family fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah because God was judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And, uh, and Lot's wife turns and w- looks back longingly and she turns into a pillar of salt and Lot is there with his two daughters. And Genesis 19 tells this sick story of the daughters getting their father Lot drunk and, and then an incestuous relationship takes place and the oldest daughter gets pregnant by her own father. and She has a son whose name is Moab and the youngest daughter does the same thing and she gets pregnant she has a son named Ammon Um, the Moabites they have a very very ugly beginning Uh, the book of Numbers you may recall the story Numbers like chapter 22, 23, 24 as the Israelites are coming uh, to possess this land of blessing um, they run into the Moabites who hire a prophet Balaam, and the Moabites hire Balaam to curse Israel. And they try everything they can to destroy the Israelites, their enemies. Um, even in the book of Judges, in Judges chapter 3, one of these cycles of judgment is the people sin, and God would send another nation to oppress the Israelites. Moab was one of those nations. It's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy chapter 23, but it says no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Verse 6 says, you shall never seek their peace or the prosperity all their days. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity. The Moabites were the people of cursing. The Israelites were the people whom God wanted to bless. But apparently that meant nothing to Elimelech. He steps out of the will of God, forgets what God's law had said. He's doing what was right in his own eyes. Um, He's solving the problem of the famine with his own ingenuity. He's figuring this stuff out, but with tragic results. Back in Ruth chapter 1, Verse 3 says, Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. Elimelech stepped out of the place of blessing. And he stepped right into the grave. Instead of trusting God during this time of famine in the land, to stay in the land of blessing and, and seek the Lord and trust him, Instead of living up to his name, my God is king. He attempted to solve his problem in his own way. It seemed right in his own eyes, but it was violation of God's law. And he ended up in the grave. He did what was right in his own eyes, but it cost him his life. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, Naomi's two sons, Malan and Killian, They ended up, verse 4, taking for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other was Ruth. And it says, and they lived there about 10 years. Well, the temporary stay was now permanent, so permanent that, again, these sons violated the will of God. They took foreign wives, Moabite women. Um, The heirs of the father are duplicated in the sons are they not and again another tragedy takes place verse 5 then both malan and killian also died and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband Um, what a tragic opening to the book of ruth here's naomi the the pleasant one, the delightful one. The one who probably back in Bethlehem was the life of the party. Sweet and pleasant and delightful. And now here she is. She has no husband. Her two boys are dead. She's left husbandless, childless. And in that culture, in that day and age, she was left destitute the The name of Elimelech, the family was was gone. Uh, she was now a desperately lost widow in a foreign land. The lessons from this tragic beginning, this story, I think should be obvious. if we were if we were in a small group right now meeting maybe ten fifteen of us, it'd be a great time to kind of begin discussing what those lessons might be. But let me share with you a few of them that seem to emerge in my mind from this passage. Four lessons I want to share with you. First of all, when God becomes distant to us, so does his blessings. When when God becomes distant to us, we move out of the realm of his blessings. Again, you know, how tragic. Here's a man whose name is, My God, is king. God is my king. But in reality, he was his own king. Elimelech was ruling his own life. He was doing his own thing. God was irrelevant. Um, He moved out of the place of blessing, Bethlehem, into the place of God's cursing. He chose to do that. Why? Because Elimelech was addressing the wrong problem. He thought the problem was the famine in the land. That wasn't the problem. The problem was he didn't have enough food. The problem was he didn't have enough relationship with Almighty God. The the problem was he was separated from a right relationship with God. He'd walked away from the presence of God. And in doing so, he walked away for the blessing of God. And instead of repenting and trusting God, he ignored God. He trusted his own mind to figure out this problem, his, his own solution to find his place of joy and peace. It's got to be just 60 miles over there in Moab. He was solving the wrong problem. The issue was his heart part of the problem was the problem of the heart he was trying to find joy and peace apart from God never works Jesus exhorts us in John chapter 15 he says I am the vine and you're the branches and if you abide in me and I in you you're going to experience you're going to bear much fruit and what is that fruit well he tells us in verse 11 these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full joy the psalmist said in his presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures forevermore it's in a relationship with god that we find fulfillment why because we've been created in his image we've been created to have fellowship with god and and that's where we're going to find completeness and and shalom wholeness is in a relationship with God. Fullness of joy, abide in me, remain in me, have have communion with me. An intimate relationship with God brings about a place of blessing. It doesn't mean the circumstances get corrected. It means what goes on inside here is a place of peace, of joy, of blessing. Fullness of joy. John Morrison talked about it last week abundant living eternal life experience not just in the sweet by and by but right now and then asking now now it's it's abundant life years ago when i was probably in high school when i saw this first it was a bumper sticker on a car that says if 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 god feels distant guess who moved you know if you don't feel close to god another permeation of it if you don't feel close to god guess who moved Elimelech found himself in a time of famine. All right, tough circumstances. You're living in a little country that's thumbed their nose up at God. God said he's going to bring famine because you walked away from God. But God called him to trust him. But instead he trusted himself. He took matters into his own hands with tragic consequences. And, And so why was God distant from Elimelech? Why, why would he have a name, my God is king, and be, and be distant from God? Because he really didn't know him as king. God was absent, he wasn't known by Elimelech. I mean, if, if, if God was known as a God of compassion and mercy, a God, a, a heavenly Father who delights to pour out his blessing, Moses said, Show me your glory. And God says, Okay, I will compassionate and, and, um, and loving, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. God says, that's who I am. And I can't wait to pour out my blessing upon you. Just trust me. Elimelech didn't know God. And so you're not going to trust a God you don't know. And he didn't. Let me ask us today, How close, how close do we feel with God? When was the last time we had a conversation with him? It's called Prayer. We just sat down and talked with him. When was the last time we reread one of his kind and gracious love letters to us? It's called the Bible. When, when was the last time we heard from him? When was the last time we sensed and I realize this is kind of... Ethereal and w- weird sounding. But when was the last time you felt his presence? I mean, felt his presence. I, you know, I was dating my wife, and even now, 45 years later, after marriage, she walks in the room, and there's something there. There's a presence. There's, there's a sense that draws your, my heart to her. It's a, because it's a relationship. How, how close to God? Folks, are you following me? Because this is real stuff. Do you feel close to God? Being distant from God means being distant from his blessings. It leads to, a, I think, a second important lesson from this passage, and that is never allow a famine in the land to lead to a famine in your soul. Never allow a famine in the land to lead to a famine in the soul. So when circumstances of life mount up against us, we live in a fallen world and bad stuff happens all the time to good people. And when those bad things begin to happen, the question is, what, what do we do with it? To whom do we turn? And those circumstances could either get between me and God Or God can be placed between me and the circumstances. And it's a choice we make. It's a choice we make. Sorrows and and trials and, and the messes of life will either press us nearer to the heart of God or we can allow them to press us far from God. We can get mad at him and angry and This is not the script I wanted written for my life. It's our choice. Years ago when our oldest child was in the depths of deep rebellion against God and a very, very painful time for me and Lisa, um, a time when I as a father was making every mistake in the book, I could write the book on what not to do. And I don't hardly remember a morning where Lisa's not up early with an open Bible in her lap, communing with God in prayer, maybe a broken heart, but a heart that even though there was a famine in the land, it wasn't going to be in her soul. Time spent with the Lord. What choices are we making when the famine hits us? Who do we turn to? What choices do we make? That famine in the land, don't let it become a famine in our soul. A third lesson, I think, from this sad opening story is that when we tolerate little sins, watch out, it can lead to embracing larger ones. Tolerating those, well, it's just a, it's just a little sin. It's not that big of a deal. Come on. All right, all right. I maybe you shouldn't have done it or thought it, but I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Come on. Tolerating the little steps of sin. Watch out. Elimelech went to Moab. We're just going to park the camper for a few weeks and, and it'll be over. And we know at least 10 years Temporary visit ended up being a permanent dwelling in a land of cursing. The 18th century English poet Alexander Pope once wrote Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet soon too oft, familiar her face, we first endure, then pity and then embrace. Oh, it's a slippery slope. It starts out just the, the little nod, the little look here, the, the unkind word here, and, and all of a sudden, it's a, it's a monster that rages out of control. Gary Richmond years ago, wrote a book. He was a former zookeeper, actually, and he wrote a book entitled A View from the Zoo, He took uh, stories about animals and very creatively and made spiritual applications to them. One of those animals that he made a story about was about a raccoon. He wrote, raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months. After that, they often attack their owners. And since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, I felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon who was owned by a young friend of mine named Julia. She listened politely as I explained the coming danger, and I'll never forget her answer. Oh, it'll be different for me, she smiled, and then she added, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, she underwent plastic surgery for facial laceration sustained when her Adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason after that bandit was soon released into the wild. And Richmond adds Sin too often comes dressed in an adorable guise. And as we play with it, how easy it is to say, Oh, it'll be different for me. And yet the results are so predictable. We tolerate the the little sins. And soon we embrace them. We endure, we pity, we embrace. I think we need to reconsider what our opinion of sin really is. Maybe we need to be reminded how offensive sin is to God so offensive that he sent his son into this world to die the excruciating death a roman crucifixion to die for us and our sin god hates sin and he's holy and he's righteous that same son of mine who's now 41 will come and tell me (coughs) hey dad um. Have you have you been praying about your own walk with the Lord? Have you have you recently talked with the Lord and asked Him, you know, like David did, to search me and try me to see if there's some wicked way in my heart? My son, telling me this week after week almost. Dad, have you have you talked with God and asked Him to reveal? some area of sin in your life, some area of idolatry in your life. There's a fourth thing, a lesson that I want to share with you, and that is beware of the malignancy of sin. Sin is malignant. Elimelech left the land of blessing, went to Moab, and what resulted? His death, his sons marry Moabite pagans, and they die. Naomi is left without a husband, without children, destitute. There's a malignancy of sin. Sin is never content to stay contained. Jerry Bridges uh, wrote a book. He was uh, on staff with uh, the Navigators for many, many years. He wrote a book that its title intrigued me, the good, clean-cut pastor that I am. It was entitled Respectable Sins. In chapter 3 of his book, it's entitled The Malignancy of Sin, and he writes this. Sin is a spiritual and moral malignancy, and left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives, and even worse, it will often metastasize from us into the lives of other believers around us. None of our lives um, are lived in a spiritual and social island our attitudes our words our actions oftentimes even our private unspoken thoughts tend to have an effect on those around us because there's a built-in malignancy to sin beware Um, sin is never content Elimelech's sin impacted his children his wife, oh, it was devastating. Now, let me stop for a moment. We're beginning this study of the book of Ruth. Four chapters, little book of Ruth. I'm sure you're familiar with it. You have probably read it, studied it before. Some have described the book of Ruth as the most perfect and loveliest of stories. One commentator wrote, No poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. Perfect, beautiful, lovely. Are you kidding me? Based on these first five verses, come on. Well, hang in there. Uh, Over the next several weeks as we study through this book, um, we'll indeed see the lovely story, the love story that is really God's story towards us, how God will work his, his mercy and his grace his unfailing, loyal love to his people in a most amazing and creative way. We'll we'll get to that. But as we close this morning, I just want to, after these first five verses, I just want to give a little glimmer of hope about God in this story of Ruth as he's revealed. I want to go back to that main character, Elimelech. The man whose name is my God is king. I want to share with you um, two heroes that are not mentioned in these verses. They're unnamed, they're unknown, but they're heroes in this story. And they're the parents of Elimelech. In a day when there was no king in Israel, and everyone was doing what was all right in their own eyes. Whoever these parents were, they had a little baby boy. And when there was no king in Israel, they said, oh yes, there is. And they named their son, God is my king. My God is king. And then hope and joy of this little baby that was born they expressed their trust in God well obviously Elimelech did not live up to that name yet I think his name really is the essence of the message of these short little four chapters called Ruth somehow ironically in, in this man Elimelech is this message that God is going to communicate in the book of Ruth. In spite of sin, in spite of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, in spite of the fact that there was no king in the land, God is saying, oh, but there is. He's king. And sin and judgment... The violations of God's law and following after other gods and worshiping at the feet of Baals, nothing will thwart the purposes and plans of almighty sovereign God, the King Jehovah. And when those parents named that little boy, they were making a statement. There is a God in heaven. And no matter how bad you sin and no matter how you run away from God and no matter how this world is is a mess and going to hell fast in a handbasket, no matter how bad things get, God is king. And he reigns supreme. And the story of the book of Ruth will show how this king, this supreme sovereign, will weave in the lives of, of two helpless widows, Naomi and Ruth, and will weave this wonderful plan of God so that by the time we finish the book of Ruth there's another little baby born and his name is David the anointed one from whom comes our Messiah God is king I want us to be encouraged in a world that is just a mess It breaks our heart to see what's going on in this sick world, in our own beloved country that has so turned its back on God and is suffering the the consequences of of a godless life in this country. God is still reigning. And he's fulfilling his purposes and plans. And one day, let us be encouraged, one day, that Messiah is coming again. And God made that possible because a slave, pagan woman, Moabite woman named Ruth ended up in the picture in Israel and became in the lineage of Messiah. That's the message of Ruth. It's a message we desperately need to hear today. Would you bow your head in prayer? Oh, Father, we're grateful. That our hope can be in you. In a world that is a despairing, in a world that is so messed up, you are still king. As Isaiah saw in the year Uzziah died, the heavens opened, that he, he saw you, the Lord, in all your magnificent glory, sitting on the throne, you are the king of kings, the Lord of the Lords. And though you are allowing this time of of peril, this time of sin and degradation, you're right on track to fulfill your plan. And a little story like Ruth, stuck right in the midst of the darkness of judges, will encourage us, I pray, Father, as we study it together. Teach us. Reveal yourself to us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.